Welcome to the Hogan Levels False Claims Act podcast series. These episodes will focus on many important cases and issues that have surfaced in 2020, shaping False Claims Act enforcement today and in the years to come. In this six-part podcast series, our lawyers will analyze some key developments to help you prepare if the government comes calling with tough questions. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, also known as the CARES Act, is an economic stimulus bill that's designed to provide much-needed financial assistance to those struggling during the pandemic. The CARES Act provides critical aid, primarily in the form of direct payments to individuals and families, but it also provides loan packages to businesses, corporations, and healthcare providers. To date, the government has authorized more than $2 trillion in federal loans, grants, and other financial assistance under the CARES Act. With that said, however, there are certain strings that are naturally attached to the disbursement of this type of financial stimulus. My name is David Bastian, and I'm a senior associate in Hogan Lovell's Boston office. Joining me today on this podcast are Marta Thompson, a senior associate in our Washington, D.C. office, and Ray Lee, who is also an associate in our Washington, D.C. office. Thank you both very much for joining me today. For those of you listening today, we are recording this podcast in our homes to comply with COVID-19 social distancing guidelines. Marta, I'd like to start with you. The CARES Act offers a real lifeline to businesses and workers across America, and some who may not normally have qualified for this type of aid. Could you give us a broad overview of how significant this relief package really is? The CARES Act is indeed a significant piece of legislation. As you mentioned, it's a $2 trillion stimulus and aid package that was passed in late March 2020 in response to the economic fallout caused by the COVID-19 virus. And just to put this in historical perspective, this is close to 10% of the nation's annual GDP, which is nearly twice as much as President Obama's Recover Act in 2008. The stimulus spending continues to grow. Uh, On December 27, 2020, Congress passed a $900 billion supplemental relief package called the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2021, which will continue the funding into this new year. And Americans have felt the effects of the CARES Act in a number of ways. For individuals, two rounds of stimulus paychecks have mostly been sent out to individuals who fall into certain income brackets. And from the perspective of small businesses, the CARES Act has created the Paychecks Protection Program, which provides eligible small businesses with loans for payroll and certain non-payroll expenses. And it offers loan forgiveness to those borrowers who meet certain employee retention requirements and can show that the funds they received were used for eligible expenses during a covered period, which is usually up to 24 weeks from the date of the loan origination. To date, the PPP has distributed about $525 billion through more than 5 million loans. Uh, In the healthcare space, for example, the CARES Act and related legislation have also appropriated funds to reimburse eligible healthcare providers for their healthcare-related expenses or lost revenues attributable to COVID-19 through the HHS-administered Provider Relief Fund. So these are only a couple elements of the CARES Act, but as you can see, um, it's a very extensive relief package that really affects all areas of the economy. Thank you very much, Marta. Uh, And Ray, I'd love to bring you into the conversation. Um, Now, we mentioned earlier, obviously, there are certain stipulations and requirements attached to funding under the CARES Act, and I'd like to delve into that a little bit more. Could you talk about some of these requirements that companies need to consider when they receive relief under the CARES Act? 
of course, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, so there are definitely some areas of uh, risk uh, with compliance and, and False Claims Act risk specifically associated with accepting and using these relief funds under the CARES Act. Um, I generally think of four main areas that companies should think about. Um, first, it comes with the eligibility for these programs in the first place and the certification for the acceptance of these funds. Uh, so each of these funds obviously has its own set of eligibility metrics. Uh, for example, the Paycheck Protection Program that Marta mentioned um, is open to certain small businesses defined as those employing less than 500 individuals. Um, but there's obviously some ambiguity here, right? So um, how do we count the number of individuals that are employed? Um, how does a company operate um, and count employees if it's a franchise? Um, and so there's obviously going to be a lot of questions around uh, whether a company um, is eligible in the first place for receiving this money. So uh, be sure to make sure that you are eligible before accepting and certifying that um, you're an appropriate user of this type of fund. The next kind of major area of risk uh, comes with the appropriate use of the funds. Each program under the CARES Act has allowable uses for the funds that are given. Um, these are often written quite generally. Um, so almost all of these programs tie allowable uses to uh, confronting the COVID-19 pandemic and addressing related business interruptions. Um, but it's important to note um, that there are going to be restrictions on the use of funds. And many of the different funds, um, like the PPP or the HH. S's uh, provided relief fund um, are going to have actually some explicit things you cannot use the money for. Um, so, for example, um, under the PPP, small business owners uh, shouldn't be using the funds for kind of their own personal expenses. Under the um, provider relief fund, hospital systems can't be using um, their money for executive compensation. Read uh, the specific restrictions that come with this money, because sometimes these restrictions actually get pretty granular. For example, uh, universities under the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund uh, can't actually use the money that they're given for capital outlays for athletics facilities and stadiums on campus. Um, Congress actually gets pretty specific in some instances, uh, but in other instances, it gets pretty general. The next kind of major area of risk uh, is going to come with the terms and conditions related to the money. Um, and those might be kind of related conditions uh, that aren't just explicitly about how the money is used itself. For example, some of these programs have restrictions that in order to kind of use and keep this money, uh, recipients have to keep their employee headcount steady. And so there's going to be some ambiguity as to how these terms and conditions are going to apply uh, to to different recipients. Another kind of major term and condition we're going to see throughout um, the CARES Act is going to be a prohibition on double dipping in relief funds. For example, a hospital cannot request reimbursement from Medicare for an expense that it'll also cover with funds from the provider relief fund. The final kind of major area we're going to see FCA risk is around reporting itself. Uh, so each of these programs is going to come with different reporting requirements. Um, these requirements are going to ask for different things. They're going to come at different timelines, uh, depending on the fund and the regulatory agency that's going to be overseeing the funds. Um, so it's important that uh, these reporting requirements are met uh, accurately and timely. And it's important to also note that these, these reports are going to be public in most instances. Um, and so that's kind of a thing to make sure uh, that companies are looking at reputational risks around spending outside of just the FC risk itself. Marta, and following up on, on, on the issue of the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, I'd like to talk about some of the specific risks in various sectors of the U.S. economy um, with respect to the PPP. Uh, can you talk about the program and the types of loans that could be subject to FCA enforcement actions down the line? 
As I mentioned earlier, uh, the PPP provides small businesses with loans for payroll and certain non-payroll expenses, and it offers loan forgiveness to borrowers who can meet certain employee retention requirements and show that they use the funds for these eligible expenses during a certain covered period. For example, you can't use PPP funds to reimburse yourself for expenses that you incurred basically before the coronavirus started in a window that's that's too far outside of when you receive the loan. And you also need to show that you've made a an effort to retain your employees and keep them on the payroll um, because the whole the whole goal of the CARES Act, right, is to keep people employed, keep the economy running. With respect to risk created under the PPP, the PPP has a number of eligibility requirements, um, particularly regarding the types of organizations that can apply and the size of the organizations. Um, for anyone who is familiar with the world of small business contracting, um, you will know that calculating one's size has always been very tricky because the company must not only count the employees of the company, but it also has to add in the number of employees from any other companies with which it is affiliated. And affiliation is a, is a really loaded term and it can be really difficult to determine who your affiliates are because you can have affiliation based on many different grounds such as um, common ownership, um, common management, uh, an identity of interest between two companies. Um, additionally, under the PPP, borrowers have had to make numerous certifications, um, including that there's an uncertainty of current economic conditions that make the loans necessary to support, quote, ongoing operations. And they need to represent that the costs um, covered by the loan are eligible payroll and non-payroll costs. Further, they can't have other pending PPP loans, and they cannot have received duplicative PPP loans. And it will be interesting to see further if lenders are also going to be facing FCA risk on the basis that they were reckless in making loans to businesses that they knew or they should have known were ineligible or were unduly risky recipients. This is fertile ground not only for FCA suits brought against small businesses, but potentially lenders as well. Another area I'd like to discuss with you is um, the, the fact that federal agencies have also benefited from CARES Act funding. Uh, specifically in their discretion, these agencies are able to modify the terms of existing contracts that they have with various federal contractors. Um, and in particular, they're able to uh, reimburse paid sick leave, uh, paid leave, including sick leave. And I was hoping you could please walk us through some of the risk factors that you see with respect to those provisions of the bill. The CARES Act does have uh, Section 3610 uh, within it that allows government agencies at their own discretion uh, to modify terms of existing contracts that they have uh, with federal government contractors. Um, these modifications will allow uh, more flexibility in providing reimbursements uh, for those contractors for paid leave and sick leave uh, related to interruptions because of COVID. It's really important to note here that each agency will decide its own set of rules and how it will go about implementing that kind of uh, regulatory flexibility here. 
Um, in general, these agencies are restricting this type of benefit of reimbursing sick leave and paid leave for contractors uh, to contractors who cannot perform work um, on government-owned or government-leased facilities due to closures because of COVID itself. This actually flexibility shouldn't be applied uh, to those types of contractors that can work remotely or can telework. If you're a consulting firm that con- contracts with the federal government, that might not be a great fit for this type of flexibility, um, whereas someone who works um, in construction maybe um, might have had their work more interrupted because of COVID. Um, and so making sure all government contractors know uh, what rules apply to their specific uh, contracting agency are going to be really important here. The FCA, as we know, can also be used as a punitive statute. And so my final question for both of you is whether you would be uh, willing to share the top three pieces of advice that you could give to businesses looking for financial relief under the CARES Act. What can they do to mitigate the risk of future False Claims Act exposure? And Marta, I'd love to start with you. I would say first, do your homework on the eligibility requirements before applying for funds and the spending limitation once you receive funds. Engage your in-house counsel if you have it. Um, engage outside counsel if you need to. But I think really not getting caught up in the flurry of um, just applying for funds right away and, and taking a little time to really understand what the limitations are is obviously the most important Uh, To the extent that you're grappling with ambiguous guidance on eligibility and um, spending requirements, it may also be worth considering documenting your decision-making with respect to eligibility requirements or, you know, why you think certain costs are allowable costs to be charged to uh, CARES Act funds and providing that information either to the lenders or to the government when you're submitting claims for these funds because the more you information you can have on record um, explaining your decision making can be quite helpful. Making a good faith effort to explain your reasoning in light of a ambiguous statute can be quite helpful um, down the line when you're facing charges that you knowingly made fraudulent submissions. Thanks so much, Marta. Ray, what about you? My top areas of kind of guiding my clients is really first understanding the terms and conditions, Um, not only the terms and conditions of the actual programs here, but the terms and conditions that come with accepting federal money in general. Uh, For example, a lot of my education clients in the K through 12 space, especially uh, private independent schools, don't typically actually have to follow um, some of the educational civil rights statutes um, that come with federal money that is given to public K through 12 schools. However, because of accepting things like uh, PPP loans, they're actually then brought into some of these civil rights regimes that they're not used to working under uh, related to things like special education um, or discrimination in admissions. And so it's really important to understand kind of the whole bucket of terms and conditions that might come uh, with taking federal money, not just through a CARES Act program, uh, but in general, especially if this is the first time that you're going to be taking on federal funds. Um, Second, as, as Marta said, document everything. 
everything. Um, and this is not just documenting the guidelines in terms of how you're interpreting ambiguous regulations, but also documenting how everything is spent, keeping your receipts and really understanding um, where money uh, is coming from when it's being uh, funded through federal funds under the CARES Act. Finally, a, a kind of a big piece of advice is look at the business case here. Um, just because money is available doesn't mean uh, all businesses should take it. Um, it could be that the conditions just won't work out for your company, and it doesn't make sense to try to keep um, in line with all of these requirements of funds um, if you should just reject the funds in the first place. Um, it could also be the case that the optics of taking this money uh, may not be good reputationally for your company. We know um, that there are, there are some you know firms out there that might technically qualify for a PPP loan, um, but uh, might not be kind of the target audience of um, small business administration help in the first place. And so making sure you kind of look through and understand um, both all of the risks that come with this money in an FCA sense, but also the reputational risk that might come with the money um, as well. So making sure you make that strong business case before signing up for any of these strings. Thank you, Ray. And I'd like to thank both of you for an incredibly insightful and helpful discussion. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in any of the issues raised during this podcast, we would love to discuss them in more depth. Please feel free to reach out to today's podcast participants or your Hogan Levels contact to talk through any questions or comments you may have. For additional analysis on this topic and others around the FCA, please download our latest publication, False Claims Act Guide 2020 and the Road Ahead from HoganLevels.com.